0: Good morning, Deer Creek. Uh, Let's begin by praying. Uh, We're going to actually pray, and I'm going to use the words of Psalm 25 uh, to kind of lead us this morning, because we have to acknowledge that no matter what we do, we can read as much Bible as we want. We can be taught as much as we want, but unless God actually intervenes and He actually teaches and applies, it's kind of useless. So let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray to You, the God that we just sang about, whose mercy is more and your word says, God, that we are to ask you for all things, that he who needs wisdom just has to come and ask you, and you'll richly pour it out. So we pray, God, make us to know your ways, teach us your paths, lead us in your truth. Would you teach us? For you're a God of salvation. And God, we long for you, we wait for you, and we need you. So we pray that you would be that to us now by your Spirit. You would be our teacher, you would be our guide, and you would remind us of the great salvation that you've accomplished in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So we are in like iteration number 20 plus of our book of Roman series called Basic Christianity. And if you've been joining with us just the past two weeks, uh, we've been talking through a very challenging teaching, a very challenging doctrine that the Bible talks about. And we're not pulling it out of thin air. Uh, we're not... Kind of forcing this discussion on uh, what Paul's been talking about, but it's actually just come out naturally from reading in the Book of Romans, and it's the teaching and it's the doctrine of predestination and election. And just to catch us up to speed, if you haven't been here over the past couple of weeks, we've really been looking throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, especially here in Romans chapter nine, and we've kind of constructed this definition of predestination. So let's just go over that again. That'll kind of orient us as we dive into our passage this morning. We've said this, predestination is the biblical teaching that God sovereignly chooses our eternal destiny that is heaven or hell before the foundation of the world. So predestination its this biblical teaching that God sovereignly chooses Our eternal destiny, heaven or hell, before the foundation of the world. And the first time that Paul referenced this idea was in Romans chapter 8, just a chapter before Romans chapter 9 that we're looking at this morning. And Paul mentioned it in the stream of these really great promises that God has for us, that if we follow Jesus, no matter what comes our way, we have this great confidence that God's working everything for our good and His glory. He put it this way. He said, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see this this long chain, right? Stretching from eternity past, God foreknew a people, and those whom he foreknew, he predestined that he would call them to his son Jesus to have faith in him. And then, He justifies them. He gives them forgiveness of their sins so that one day, eternity future, they would be glorified, that they would take on the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's Romans chapter 8. That's predestination. And then in Romans chapter 9, Paul says you can see this idea, this doctrine, this teaching everywhere throughout the Bible. And he says, just look specifically at God's central people in the Old Testament. Look at Israel. He says, of Israel, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race. According to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Amen. So you see here, Paul is saying, hey, Israel, we're given these great promises, these descendants of Abraham, a promise of adoption into God's family, a promise of glory and eternal life with God, promises of salvation and promises ultimately of a Savior, Jesus, who is Christ over all who would come and he would accomplish all of these promises for his people. But then Paul continues He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. So Paul's saying, hey, there was these great promises to Israel in the Old Testament, but Within Israel, God has always chosen some. He's always chosen some who would actually receive those promises. Those who would actually receive adoption and glorification and all the rest. And God always passed over others. So if you have children, I have four children and sometimes they, you know, they still all take a bath together because they're all like six and under. And you know the toy I'm talking about where you have uh, this cup and they have... Inside that cup are these other stackable cups. And you pour water in them and you can stack them together. Well, Paul's saying that's what it's like in God's people in the Old Testament. There's Israel, the ethnic descendants of Abraham of the flesh. And then there's true spiritual Israel within them whom God has chosen to receive all of his promises. And so Paul says, just look at Abraham. He's the first guy that God predestined and called in the Old Testament. And Abraham had two sons, true ethnic descendants of him. And he says, Ishmael was passed over by God, but Isaac was chosen to receive the promise. And then even Isaac's children, there's Jacob and Esau, and God Chose Jacob to receive the promises, and God passed over Esau. In other words, not all are descended from Israel. Not all of them belong to the true Israel. That's predestination. That's what Paul's been talking about the last two weeks. And as you can imagine, right, we've gone through some of these, this doctrine, this teaching, it leads to just numerous questions, (laughs) numerous questions, numerous objections, in fact. we've talked about a lot of them. Questions like, well, what about free will? Does this mean that we're just robots carrying out God's will? We've talked about that. Or, or why does God choose some and then not others? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why does God choose some today and not others? Or why doesn't, why doesn't God just choose everyone? if He's truly merciful. And so, We've talked about a lot of those questions, and Paul actually fielded another question last week. And that question was: well, does predestination, election, does that make God unjust? Does it make God unfair to choose some, pass over others? Choose some for heaven and pass over others for condemnation in hell? It seems unjust. And Paul was quick to remind us last week: he said, No, by no means. God's not unjust, because as Paul has described, everyone deserves, everyone is owed God's judgment. As Paul described it, remember he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and the wages of sin is death. So Paul really views humanity or how God views humanity, how the Bible views humanity is we're all in a current and a stream of sin, a, a stream and a current that we contribute to, And that stream is heading toward eternal judgment and condemnation. And what Paul says is, when God passed over Esau, or when he passes over Ishmael, when he passes over everybody, God's not being unfair or unjust to them, no. God's actually being exceedingly just. He's giving people what it is that they've chosen, giving people what it is that they deserve for their sin. So Paul said, don't be mistaken. God's not unjust and unfair by passing over others. He's actually being exceedingly fair. He's giving people what it is they deserve for their sin. But Paul also stressed another point. He said, hey, just because God chooses some, that doesn't make him unjust either. Because just because God chooses some doesn't mean he owes mercy to all. And you think of a president Right, A president, when they're a lame duck, once they've been voted out of office or their, their term limit comes to a four, a president is free to pardon people at his will. It's actually one of the last things he can do unilaterally as a president is to tell people who are justly in prison, you are free. You are liberated. I have pardoned you. You have no longer have to bear the punishment for your crime. And the point being is that just because a president shows mercy to some individuals does not mean that he owes mercy to every single criminal in the United States penal system. So Paul stressed this point: God is not just, unjust, by no means. His pardon, his mercy, is a free and voluntary gift to give out as he chooses. So that leads us to our question this week. Paul's answered a number of questions, and Paul's going to field another question this morning, and it's in verse 19 of Romans chapter 9. The question goes like this You'll say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And now we're going to return to that question. Just lay that aside really quick, because I also want to just talk momentarily about a couple of practical questions that come up in predestination when we talk about election. These are questions that a lot of us have. And the main question that I hear is, well, what does this mean for evangelism? What does this mean for prayer? After all, if God has already chosen who's going to be saved, then why do we carry out evangelism? Why do we even pray for people who don't believe in Jesus? And as a person who has family members myself that don't believe in Jesus, this is actually a very personal question, as I'm sure it is for many of you. So in way of answering that, let me just say first, we have to realize that God not only predestines the ends, but he always predestines the means as well. God not only predestines the ends, but he predestines the means. Meaning, God will always predestine ordinarily and regularly certain things to happen to accomplish his purpose. So you can think of it this way. Old Testament, right? God's people are traveling through the wilderness. And God, in order to feed his people, rains down quail from the heavens. Directly, right? Quail just falling falling everywhere around the camp of the people of Israel. Now, God could do that today. In order to feed his people, to feed humankind, God could just drop quail down out of the sky for us to go and pick up and boil and, and eat. Well, today in the United States, it'd probably be like, you know, slices of sirloin beef or something like that. So God could do that, right? He could drop USDA ribeyes down from the <laughs> d- down from the sky, and it could go directly into our stomach in order to feed us. But that's not how God ordinarily works, is it? No, instead God raises up calves, and he raises up ranchers, and he raises up farmers to feed those calves so that they grow up into healthy bulls and cows. And then those cows go to uh, a meatpacking plant and then it gets a little gruesome there. So we'll pass over some of that stuff. But all the point being is God uses these means to accomplish his end, which is to feed his people. He uses ranchers, he uses meat packers, he uses farmers. And the same is true in predestination or in election. God doesn't just predestine certain people to heaven and they get zhoom, suction cupped into heaven. No, God uses our conversations, our prayers, our witness, our evangelism, our hospitality, our demonstrated love for other people, and he uses those as means so that people will believe in his son Jesus and his son Jesus will save them for eternal life in heaven. So your evangelism matters. In fact, you are the privileged means by which God is using to draw people to his son Jesus for eternal life and forgiveness of sins. So take encouragement, talk to your friends, talk to your loved ones. So God always uses us as privileged means to share his gospel, to share the message of Jesus. But here's a more important reason to evangelize is that God commands it. You know, that's usually a good reason to do something, by the way, like when God tells you to do something, you usually want to do it, And this will often happen when you start to follow Jesus, is that when you follow Jesus, sometimes God's going to ask you to do certain things that you don't understand why he's asking you to do them. And you can't fully comprehend why he's asking you to do it. And and sometimes it doesn't even feel right. So just to give a candid example here, I became a Christian in college. And let's just say before I was a Christian, I lived a college lifestyle. And when I became a Christian... There were certain things that God commanded that I couldn't do and things that I had to do that I just couldn't understand, I couldn't make sense of. But as you follow Jesus, as you carry out his commands, as you trust him and obey him, God begins to show you and teach you and patiently give you insight as to what he was commanding that for in the first place. So, I love this quote. This comes from a famous church father. His name is Anselm. He said, The Christian life is faith seeking understanding. And what he meant by that is oftentimes following Jesus, you just have to trust. You have to believe. You have to have confidence that God knows what He's commanding. He knows what He's doing. And as you continue to follow Him, He's going to give you a measure of understanding as you continue to be obedient to Him. If you do it the other way around, if you say, Hey, I'm not going to do this, God, until you explain to me, and I fully understand how sovereignty and election and predestination and my evangelism fit together. If that's how you insist on operating in evangelism, then just to be frank, you're never going to evangelize, because we're never going to understand it. So the reality is, we have to engage in evangelism. We have to tell people the message of Jesus, because we're never going to fully comprehend we're never going to fully understand and and by the way I- engineers in here raise your hand if you're an engineer okay some engineers can probably tell us the answer to this question but in your day-to-day life think about you even right now sitting on the chair that you're sitting on now the engineers in here could probably tell us the physics behind how that chair is holding you up why that chair is supportive why that chair has the load capacity to hold your weight But did you know that and fully comprehend that and understand that before you sat down in the chair that you picked this morning? No. Because you trust, you believe that it can support you. Because you've done it and you've obeyed. Same thing in evangelism. Do it. Obey God. Sincerely follow God. Pray for people that you know, and God will give you a measure of understanding. And as good as those explanations are, by the way, and this is the last point I'm going to make. We see that this is actually just the pattern that the Bible gives us. So Paul, who's the writer of this letter to the church in Rome that we're reading and we're studying through, he was one time in the city of Corinth. And as he's in Corinth, he's sharing the message of Jesus to people. He's sharing the gospel, asking them to repent for forgiveness of sins. And he's facing all this resistance. In fact, people want to kill him. People want to throw him out of the city. But God visits Paul. And we're told this, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no evil will attack, will harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So see, that's the pattern. Paul didn't say, oh, well, there's resistance. People are predestined to go to heaven anyway. I can just pack up and leave. No, Paul said, I have people here. Stay, teach, share, instruct because God is using you as a means to bring people to his son, to carry out his purpose that he had from all eternity. So now let's return to Romans chapter nine. Practical question. Let's lay that aside. Let's revisit Romans chapter nine. Revisit this question that we left aside a moment ago. Remember, Paul fields this question. The question is this You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, God, you know we're sinful. God, you know we're sinful. You know nobody can resist your will. You've even determined all of history. You know who's going to be in heaven. Therefore, how can we be held accountable? How can you still blame us for sin when you control everything anyway and you're the one who could have stopped it? You could have made it such that sin never happened. So God, explain that to us. It makes absolutely no sense. How can God, how can God, if it's completely up to him, still blame us for our sin? And there's a lot of clever ways to answer this. One author put it this way, he says, okay, so imagine God has these bushes that he wants trimmed in front of his house. And he says, I'm going to have you trim these bushes for me and I'm going to come back at 3 p.m. And if, but I want, I want you to be careful and warned at the end of these bushes is a massive 15 foot pit that if you fall into, you're not going to be able to trim the bushes. So God turns his back. He leaves for the day. And what's the first thing that the person does? What is the first thing we do? We go and run over to the pit, and we jump headfirst into it, right? Now, God comes back at 3 p.m., and he says, hey, why are my bushes not trimmed? And we look back to God, and we say, well, God, how do you expect me to trim these bushes when I'm trapped in this pit? After all, if you haven't, hadn't left this empty pit here, I wouldn't be in this predicament now, would I? And the point that the author was trying to make is that, hey, we willingly sin. We willingly sin. God does not force us to sin or push us into a pit. He's not the author of sin and evil. No, that's squarely on us. So therefore, God can justly blame us even though he knew we would sin. Even though he could have stopped us, we are still responsible. So there's a lot of ways that we can answer this, a lot of clever philosophical ways of understanding these things and putting them together. But here's what I want you to notice this morning. How does the Bible answer it? How does the Bible answer this question for us? How does Paul answer this question for us? Well, look again, beginning in verse 19, we'll read through verse 24. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Here's Paul's answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its boulder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So I want you to notice something that Paul's doing here. See, the Bible kind of puts this forward it says, hey, we ask a lot of questions about predestination, about election. And God patiently answers them. Paul patiently answered them for some 19 verses. And there's great evidence to believe this. And Paul brought us back to the Old Testament. He showed us scriptures where this is the case. But now what Paul does is he says, hey, now it's time for God to ask the questions. It's it's time for God to start asking questions of us. And and this is something that we don't often think about, is it? In fact, I was uh, recently on vacation in San Diego with my, my family. And uh, we get into this taxi cab, and this taxi driver was from Soviet Russia. He had come over, you know, 30, 40 years earlier. He had escaped Soviet Russia. And he looks at us, and he's kind of looking in the mirror. He's like, oh, four kids, huh? You must be religious. And I said, <laughs> and I said oh, well, you know, it just so happens to be I'm a pastor. And uh, he said, oh, you know what? You know what? I never understood I never understood how God could allow so much evil. If he's truly powerful and all-loving, why did he allow the Soviet Empire? Why did he allow Stalin and Lenin and mass genocide? Why did God do that? And as best as I could, in a hot taxi driving for like 20 minutes, you know, I tried to patiently, gently give some semblance of an answer. probably wasn't satisfying. And no longer than one second after I had given the answer, he said, Yeah, but you know what? What's the deal with that Bible anyway? So far-fetched, so out of date. Seems like people arbitrarily and randomly, you know, put it together. And so, you know, I answered again, kind of gentle reply. I think I even offered a book recommendation. And then after that was over, he said, "Yeah, but what about that Jesus character? You know, he's God after all, and he he dies. So how does God die? How do you make sense of that? That's a square I can't circle." And I said, "You know, well, I can't explain it all to you in the moment." And we get there, uh, get to the destination. And the thought crossed my mind: do we ever stop and think that maybe God has some questions for us? I mean, we often sit in the judge's seat, right? And God's kind of on the witness stand and we demand, God, how do you make sense of this and that and this and that and that? And they, those are sincere questions. They're good questions. We should ask questions like that. But what we do is we we put God kind of on the witness stand and we say, God, Show yourself to be believable or not. Show yourself to be trustworthy or not. Show yourself to be good or bad, right or wrong. And based on my satisfaction on those answers, then I'll believe you, then I'll trust you, then I'll obey you. But have we ever thought, maybe we have this relationship backwards, that it's God who belongs in the judge's chair, we on the witness stand? And that's what Paul does here. So Paul answers our question with four questions of his own. He puts God in the chair of judge. He puts us on the witness stand. So we're going to look at what these questions are. We're going to look at all four questions that Paul has for us about predestination and election. So let's start with question number one and question number two. They're kind of wrapped into one. It's verse 20. So question number one, question number two, verse 20. If you have your Bible, look at verse 20. His first response, first question for us is this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God. Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me this way? See, in other words, what Paul is saying is as human beings, as God's creatures, we don't have a right to answer back to God. And Paul's highlighting something that we quickly quickly forget that God is the creator, and we are his creatures. It's God who made us. He's the molder, and we are what is molded. We're the creation. And as such, we have no right, we have no basis to answer back to God. And now I want to be clear here, because many of you have sincere questions of God, and I want you to know this. What Paul is not saying here is that we can't ask God those sincere questions. In fact, the Bible encourages us to ask questions of God, to seek his wisdom, to gain clarity, to even wrestle with him at times over hard things that we can not understand, and we're supposed to ask those things to God as questions of faith and in humility. So Paul's not saying you can't ask any questions. But here's what Paul is saying. That sometimes in our questioning we do cross a line. We cross a line where we're actually no longer asking questions in sincere, humble reliance and honest faith toward God. We actually cross this line where we start asking questions in unbelief and disobedience. That our questions actually start to become statements and accusations and protests against God in the form of a question. So if you're married, you realize this, by the way. Right when I was you know, probably two years into our marriage, I bought this shirt from Old Navy that I loved. It was this blue checkered shirt. I've even worn it to church here a couple of times. But my wife, Hannah, she didn't love the shirt. And so the first time I was going to wear it, I was going to wear it to a really important meeting. And Hannah said, Are you really going to wear that to that important meeting? You know, you're, you're really going to wear that? And I said, okay, well, it's, it's not the nicest shirt. So I took it off. And then I started trying to, a couple of years later, trying to wear it to even just casual dress days at work. She said, really, you're going you're gonna to wear that shirt, right, It's a casual dress day at work? And I started thinking, okay, maybe she really doesn't like this shirt. And then I started, after a couple years, just started wearing it to paint and mow the lawn. She said, really, really, you're going to wear that to mow the lawn, are you? And I'm like, okay, I get this. This is not a true and sincere question. This, this question is really you saying, bring that shirt to goodwill for the love of all that is good. I get that. See, that's the kind of question that is actually being asked here in verse 19. So in verse 19, notice how it said, You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul says, but who are you to answer back to God? That word answer back in the Greek literally means to contradict or to answer sharply or in a hostile manner. And see what Paul is saying, hey, when you cross that line, from questioning and faith to protest and accusation in the form of a question, seeking to contradict God, Paul's response back is, wait a second. Who are you, oh man? Let's remember here. God is patient. God does want to ask, or want you to ask questions, but who are you, oh man, to answer back to the molder and say, why have you made me like this? You have no right to answer back to God. Now, I have four children, and some of my children are getting to this age where they can start talking back, right? And, and one child, specifically, I won't name names, but he, you know... <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, he, he has started um, questioning everything. Why this? Why that? Clean your room? Why? Do the dishes? Why? mow the lawn. Why? No, he doesn't really mow the lawn. He's six. But you get to this point, right, as a parent where you just have to say, you know why? Because you are six, Because you're six, and I I can't give you an answer that your six-year-old brain will really rationalize and formalize and comprehend. We are parents, and you have to understand and trust as a six-year-old that we as parents know something that you just cannot comprehend. You you can't know it. And the place that we see this best, Paul, Paul does this here, but there's this story in the Old Testament. It's the story of Job. Job was, we're told, a righteous man. And God, because of of his good purpose, because of whatever reason that God had in his goodness and his love and his mercy, allowed Job to really be the victim of losing all of his material possession, losing all of his family, and being afflicted head to toe with sores that were exceedingly painful. And Job is asking these questions back to God, like, God, why is this happening to me? I'm decent, I'm a good person, and all this trial and tragedy is coming upon me. And at a point, Job's questioning became kind of accusations and protests against God. So God's response back to Job, very simply, was this the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you and make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed i continue, but this questioning goes on for 94 more verses. God giving a barrage of questions to Job. And Job's response at the end of all this is simple. Job answered the Lord and said, God, I, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You said, who is this, the high counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I don't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear and I'll speak. I will question you and and make it known to me. God, God, I heard. I heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So see, Job here, he gets the message. It's a hard message. But the second that we think that as the creature we can stand in place of God, the creator, we've left our rightful place. And we begin to stand in judgment over God, demanding an answer from the one who should be asking the questions. So that's what Paul's getting at in verse 20. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Again, Paul's drawing from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 29. And in Isaiah chapter 29, this great prophet is coming and he's answering these smart alecks who think they know better than God. And his response to them is, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed of him who formed it? He has no understanding. He picks up this imagery later on and he says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. See, you turn things upside down when you do that. God is creator. We're the creatures. What is molded should not answer back to the molder. Just yesterday, I was making pancakes. You know, I have this batter, this thing that I molded, I formed. How weird would it be if that batter started saying, too many eggs, too many eggs? Or, hey, not enough milk. I'm going to be a little bit too thick. And as you're pouring it, you know, oh, that's a bad circle. Oh, that's a bad circle. Oh, that's a bad circle. Because who can get a perfect circle anyway with a pancake? And it was Saturday, I wanted to treat my kids, so I'm putting down chocolate chips and the pancake batter. What if it said back to me, Oh, you're really going to spoil those kids, better not do that? Well, just think of how ridiculous that would be. How odd would that be for that batter to tell me what to do? I am the maker. And what we kind of expect sometimes, I know this happens to me all the time. I I read something in the Bible or something's going on in my life. I'm like, God, why did you do it that way? Why are you doing it like this? And I half expect, honestly, I kind of half expect sometimes God's going to come to me and be like, Daniel, why did I not think to come and talk to you first? Oh, my goodness, you're so right. Oh, that escaped me. Oh, you know what? Here's my email address, Daniel. Write to me whenever you have this brilliant idea, and I'll, I'll make sure to take that into consideration as I'm controlling the universe. We kind of expect God to do that, don't we? See, in our answering back to God, our protests and accusations, the main thing is we're thinking far too highly of ourselves and far too lowly of God. And the question you have to ask yourself is this Who is God? Are you God? Or is God, God. God is the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, all-powerful and majestic God. We're finite, temporal, ever-changing creatures. I've changed eight times since I've been up here. So we need to be reminded, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? We have no right to do that. And that leads to question number three. And Question number three really builds on this same idea. See question number three in verse 21. Paul asks, uh, question number three, he says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And again, as Paul so often does, he's just drawing from an Old Testament passage, Jeremiah chapter 18. We're there, Jeremiah, this great prophet, he's approached by God. We're told the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I'll let you hear my words. So Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house, and there he sees this potter working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands. And the potter reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. See, question number one and two was really getting at God's creator, we're creatures. We can't answer back to God. Question number three reminds us, as creator, God has a right over his creature to do whatever he pleases, or as Jeremiah said, to do as seems good for him. So Paul says God is this good potter who has right over the clay, and this clay who are humankind, right? Creatures made by God in his image. God has the right to take one lump of clay, and to fashion it for honorable use, to fashion it for glory and eternal life. And he has this other clay that he can fashion for dishonorable use, for condemnation. And Paul here is really just, he's unpacking what he had said before in our previous weeks. He's saying, God has the right as creator, judge, and savior to have mercy on Israel and to judge Egypt and Pharaoh. God has a right over this clay, To save Isaac and Jacob and to pass over Ishmael and Esau. To have free grace on some and to judge and pass over others. And now this is very important. Notice, Paul says that these vessels are made from the same lump, from the same clay, One of the difficulties we have with predestination and election is we think that this clay that God is working with is is pretty good clay, right? Like righteous and pure clay of humanity. We think, you know, if it's like Play-Doh, then, you know, it's that kind of Play-Doh that, you know, is non-toxic and it tastes like berries and it doesn't harden when you leave it out. It's like this magical Play-Doh. And God, what he's doing is he's wickedly taking this good Plato, and he just wants to smash some and save other. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, no, look at this lump. And remember, we're reading through Romans. This is actually sermon number 20 in Romans. But the first people would have heard this message would have just read Romans from beginning to end in one fell swoop. So five minutes before, they would have heard this. For we have already charged that all, Both Jew and Greek are under sin, as it is written, "'None is righteous, no, not one.'" No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I don't know about you, but that's a mirror directly into my heart. And I don't want to press this metaphor too far, but if you had to describe this lump that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 9, or this Play-Doh, right, it's kind of like the toxic kind. It's kind of like Play-Doh with shards of glass in it, right, that you form in there and you cut yourself. It's an obstinate type of Play-Doh that doesn't want to be shaped, doesn't want to be formed, and it tastes terrible. It doesn't taste like berries. It's kind of like those novelty jelly bellies, right? Right that tastes like dirty dishes and gym socks and boogers. (laughs) So Paul's not saying God takes this righteous, pure, good lump and just destroys some and then, you know, has mercy and grace on some others. He says, no, this lump, us, are sinful, obstinate, rebellious lumps of clay that God has chosen in his sheer mercy and grace to die for some, to forgive them of their sins, to give them eternal life, and as creator, just judge, and merciful savior to punish others. But the point being this that God reserves that right. One of the things I think that makes, and I'm actually asked this all the time you know, if this is truly a good thing that God teaches, then why does it lead to so much controversy? Why is it so contentious, even among Christians? Well, There are many ways that you can answer that. I think the main reason that we, at least, as 21st century Americans have such a hard time believing in this doctrine, this teaching of the Bible, is that it tells us God, in the end, has this right. As our creator, judge, and savior, as the potter, he has this right to do as he pleases what seems good to him over the clay. And that's difficult because in our culture... When we talk about rights, it talks about the opposite. After all, the Declaration of Independence starts with this inalienable right that we have. We have the inalienable right. We have the inalienable liberty to do what we think is good, to pursue our own happiness, to pursue what we think is best. And in our culture, we're at the center, aren't we? Think of Burger King. You can have it your way. It's not enough to just get a Whopper. You got to have it specialized to you. Or L'Oreal Paris tells you, because you're worth it, you deserve this shampoo. Right? We're at the center in our culture. The world exists to serve us, we're in control. So when Paul gives us this honest reflection about God, that he has rights over us, he chooses based on his right and freedom, he's the center of the universe. He commands service to him. He controls our destiny. In other words, a big God, if we're honest, we just simply don't like that. If you're honest, we want a God that we can control, a God who loves the way we think he should love, a God who judges the way that we think he should judge, a God who puts us at the center, a God who exists to carry out and serve our purposes and our wills, In short, we want a God made in our image. And we want a God that we can shape and form or accommodate in the way that we see fit. We want a God who's clay. I love this quote from Voltaire. Voltaire was the Enlightenment philosopher, the French Enlightenment philosopher. He said, quote, In the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. But again, friends, that's just turning things upside down. God is the sovereign creator, the just judge, the merciful savior. And he has the right. He's at the center to take us, this common lump that's been polluted and corrupted, and to use one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use. He reserves that right. And here's my challenge to you. You still might disagree with this idea, and it sounds grave. It sounds severe. I get that. But here's my challenge to you, if you have a sincere and a true relationship with God, wouldn't you expect him to contradict you and disagree with you at points? After all, I have a wife of nine years and we still have tension. We're learning, we're growing, we're trying to iron out some of our differences, but part of being a relationship with anyone that isn't you will mean there is going to be ways that you disagree and conflict with one another. So my challenge is, hey, if you have a God that never disagrees with you and you never disagree with him, then friends, all you've merely done is made a God in your own image, which is to say you've made no God at all. So finally, question number four, I'm going to leave it here, verses 22 and 23. And what Paul's doing in these verses is Paul is not so much asking a question as he is now making a statement. And that statement is that God in predestination and election, what he's doing is he's showing us. This is his purpose in it. He's showing us, he's revealing to us his character. He wants to show us what he is like. That's one of the purposes that God elects, one of the reasons God predestines. So he says, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So see, God saying, here's what I'm doing. Here's my purpose. I want to show all the world that I am a wrathful God. That I'm a powerful God. That I am a just God. And you have to remember this when we're talking about God's wrath, when we're talking about God's justice, what we're really talking about is God's holiness God's spotless, pure, perfect, righteous, and good character. God says, I want to show that to you. So I want to show all of humanity that I hate sin. I hate what it does to my creatures. I hate what it does to my creation. God wants to show us he is holy and that our unholiness has corrupted God's good creation, God's good creatures. He wants to show all of humanity in his goodness. He's a God of justice who will by no means clear the guilty. He's not an unjust God. He won't wink his eye at sin. So Paul says, God, to show who he is, Has prepared that some vessels will be destroyed and experience his wrath and his punishment. And he has passed over some people to demonstrate to them his power and his wrath and his holiness so that all will see in vibrant colors this is who we serve, this is God. And I get, again, uncomfortable. It's very, very grave, it can sound severe. But friends, remind yourself this question. Does God get to be God or do we get to be God? And the fact of the matter is, in our culture, we just feel very uncomfortable with a God who is anything more than exclusively love. You know, I was recently, uh, I've shared these statistics before, I think, I went this morning to just recheck them. If you go to a Christian, I went to a Christian radio uh, webpage and you can search the lyrics of contemporary Christian songs and you type in love, it returns 774 results. Do you know how many you get if you type in wrath? <laughs> One. One. And that song was from 1993. Or type in judgment. Two. Friends, that's not God. One thing's clear: this idea of a God of judgment and wrath, it's not pleasant, it's not popular. But Paul says this is crucial. Do you, you want to understand God's love? Do you want to understand his mercy? Do you want to understand his goodness? that's why Paul said, verse 23, God says he prepares vessels for wrath, for destruction. He wants to show his wrath. Why? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory. For vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. See, Paul's saying... That the dark canvas of the wrath of God in powerfully judging sin is where we can most see the radiant beauty and splendor of His mercy and His love for His children. Because against the backdrop of God's wrath, we can see, as children of God who have faith in Him, we can see what this God has saved us from. We can see that He has saved us from the wrath and destruction that our sins deserve. And instead, we can experience the love and mercy of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's actually one of the reasons that we come to this table on a regular basis. It's because this table illustrates that God's election, his predestination led to the cross. And it was at the cross that God vented his wrath on his perfectly innocent son So that we as his people could see that that wrath and that judgment and that power was poured out on his innocent son so that we might receive the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the adoption of God, the eternal life of God. It's at the cross where God's purpose and election shows us this is the God we serve, the God who is perfectly just and wrathful, but who sacrifices and gives his life for creatures who don't deserve it so that he can give them his love.